Spring is my favorite time to start a new workout routine. With the weather warming up, it feels easier to get into the rhythm of things. Whether you have 20 minutes or an hour for a Pilates class or outdoor guided walk, Peloton has everything you need to help you get going. Get a head start on summer with Peloton at OnePeloton.com. Burrow is a furniture company known for timeless design and thoughtful construction and free shipping. And that extends to their outdoor collection. Their outdoor furniture is built to withstand the elements, featuring rust-proof stainless steel hardware, weather-ready teak, and quick-dry foam cushions. For Memorial Day, get 15% off your Burrow purchase at burrow.com slash ACAST and up to 25% off outdoor. That's up to 25% off outdoor furniture at burrow.com slash ACAST. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Mental health is a topic that seems to be a constant feature of modern life. One recent report called the problem amongst young people a silent catastrophe, while a survey of teachers labelled it an epidemic. According to the organisation Mind, one in four people in the UK will experience a mental health condition each year and antidepressant prescriptions has almost doubled in 10 years. In the US, concerns about young people's mental health have also lately come to the fore, including for common problems like anxiety, depression and suicide. Suicide is the second biggest cause of death for 10 to 24-year-olds in the US and 90% of those who die have a mental health condition. What is mental illness and why does it seem to be on the increase? Moreover, what can Islam tell us about dealing with our mental health? My guest today has been working in the field for over 20 years. Dr Imran Wahid is a consultant psychiatrist working with acute mental conditions. I'm keen to ask him about what mental illness is and is not and why does it seem to be more common in the West than some Eastern societies. But also how can Islam help us to deal with the basic human condition and build avenues for human resilience? Dr. Imran Wahid, welcome to the show. Assalamu alaikum wa rahmatullah. Wa alaikum salam wa rahmatullah wa barakatuh. Now, Jazakallah khair, Imran, for joining us. And um, I'm keen to understand whether Islam, as its uh, historical traditions, whether it has uh, a, a developed literature on mental health and, and whether uh, Islamic texts actually discuss this issue or is it uh, in in many ways a, a modern uh, a modern branch of uh, medicine? It's an interesting question. I mean, my, my background is in medicine. So I'm a medical doctor and then I specialized in mental health. Um, so, and I, I mainly come into contact with people who suffer from severe mental illness. So what we call 
uh, SMI, severe mental illness, severe and enduring uh, illness. As for what Islam has had to say about mental illness, um, yeah, if you go to the texts and you go to the uh, hadith, for example, the Quran, you will find uh, references uh, to aspects of uh, mental state. Uh, so, for example, uh, you will uh, hear of uh, the story of some of the prophets. So, for example, it is uh, narrated in the Quran that uh, uh, Yaqub alayhi salam uh, lost his sight uh, due to the uh, separation or the loss uh, of his uh, son uh, Yusuf alayhi salam. Uh, for this is mentioned in the Quran. Uh, we also see Rasulullah sallallahu alaihi wasallam telling the Muslims to seek refuge from anxiety and grief. Um, we see many uh, references to sadness. Uh, we see that many of the scholars of Islam talked about uh, the responsibility or the legal responsibility of the one um, who is mentally ill. And whether the one who is mentally ill is accountable or he's not accountable, uh, not accountable, and to what degree is he culpable for his actions? So this was a discussion uh, in Islamic fiqh about the one who is mentally ill, uh, whether he is held legally accountable, for example, if he were to commit a crime. Um, so the concept of someone being mentally ill is certainly something which uh, Islam accepts that somebody could. Uh, have such an illness of the mind that he would not at all uh, be accountable for uh, his or her actions. Uh, so that is something that is uh, certainly uh, something which Islam uh, considered. But as a concept of psychiatry or mental illness, you know, the, the Islamic literature uh, does not deal with it in a, in a, in a, in a, in a, in a very vast or, or wide way. But I would say that it does set out uh, some of the principles uh, with which Muslims can view the topic. Now, now these conditions you've you've uh, outlined: anxiety, sadness, um, right up to the more extreme conditions where someone loses their ability to make rational judgments. Um, there, there is a spectrum, right? There's a spectrum of mental mental health conditions, and um, when we talk about mental health, um, we're really referring to the whole gambit, right? You know, these the entire series of, of conditions. Um, in uh, Western societies, we're seeing uh, the growing prevalence of mental health as, a, as an issue. It's a political issue now, of course. Political parties are, are talking about a lack of funding to mental health services. And um, survey after survey seems to indicate that mental health um, problems are on the rise. Um, is that because we've become more attuned to understanding uh, mental health concerns or, or are there possibly other issues at play here? To address this initially, what I would say is when you say there's a spectrum, um, there is certainly a spectrum uh, from, uh, one would say, in terms of degree of illness or symptoms from mild conditions to severe conditions. Um, but the issue that faces uh, those who work in uh, the profession, such as psychiatrists, is how do you define what is pathological? So uh, usually in medicine, if you are dealing with something like high blood pressure, 
you can have a, a very clear definition of what is pathological because you can measure a blood pressure um, and if it is above a certain level, one can say that that is pathological and it's a disease and should be treated. The issue, obviously, when it comes to diagnostic classification of mental illnesses is that there's vigorous debate about these. So there are some who are of the view that the diagnostic criteria have become, uh, the thresholds have become very, very low and that even normal uh, human emotions uh, that are experienced with loss and bereavement, that these have now been med medicalized or, or, or made pathological. And there's a debate about the reliability of such criteria and how if the criteria are in fact very wide and the thresholds are very low, actually a lot of people in the society now fall into these criteria. So I, I guess the issue is to do with how do you define when a condition is actually a disease or when it is becoming pathological? And, and, and most people in the field will look at functioning. So if somebody is still uh, able uh, to a large degree to function, uh, one wouldn't consider that uh, their illness is severe. So if you look at the criteria, for example, for the diagnosis of depression, the differences between the mild, milder forms of depression and the severe forms of depression are its effect on day-to-day -day life, its effect on functioning, your ability you know, to work, to study, uh, to manage your finances, to manage your personal hygiene and your appearance. So when a condition has a very significant effect on one's normal ability to function, then most people would consider that it's become pathological. That just hopefully provides a bit of background when, when, because you, you spoke about a spectrum of illness and I thought it's important that that, that issue is looked at. Um, and obviously, I mean, attached to that is a criticism by some that the widening of the spectrum and the medicalization of normal human emotions and behavior in, for example, a stressful situation, that some of that has been pushed by some who have interests in doing so. Um, so, for example, some are critical of the role of the pharmaceutical industry, that the pharmaceutical industry have tried to medicalize sadness and have tried to increase the use of antidepressants. And, and that, I guess, brings me onto, my, onto your question, which is, is there, just, uh, is, is there a growing amount of mental illness? Uh, is it just simply an issue of growing awareness uh, about the issue? And again, I would say that on this issue, there's vigorous debate. So we know, for example, in somewhere like the UK, um, if we went back to 2008, there were 36 million prescriptions for antidepressants. Uh, but in 2018, this had risen to almost 71 million. So you've almost got a doubling in the use of antidepressants in a period of 10 years. Now, some people will say, well, this is merely down to awareness and it's you know, more people asking for help and, and less stigma. Uh, and I have no doubt that that uh, is definitely a consideration. There is probably a bit less stigma and there is more awareness uh, of the issue. But having said that, we know that uh, antidepressant use and the increase that there's been in antidepressant use, we haven't seen the same increase in depression. So the, the, the kind of research suggests that there has been an increase in mental illnesses like depression but it hasn't doubled between 2008 and 2018, yet the prescribing has doubled. Um, so it's a complex area. I mean, 
one of the other things we've seen, for example, is that antidepressant use went up between 2008 and 2012. Uh, and some researchers are of the view that that's to do with the financial recession and austerity, that actually there was a rise in the use of antidepressants in a period when people were facing economic hardship. Um, other researchers have pointed out that there is a correlation between unemployment rates and suicide rates, a positive correlation that when unemployment goes up, suicide goes up. I don't simply think that it's due to awareness. I think that we are seeing other issues which are occurring, maybe, for example, um, less resilience, uh, some of the characteristics uh, of society uh, we have seen in terms of resilience, patience, fortitude. Some of those things seem to have gone. Uh, people, uh, in some sense, uh, are struggling with, with some of the issues that we're seeing around us. Uh, materialism, consumerism, individualism, um, the rat race of employment, um, the need for instant sensual gratification. There are a lot of issues uh, that seem to be contributing uh, to the problems we see around us. Right. So let's try to unpack that. It's a really interesting um, series of points you make. I mean, um, I've been reading some papers about the prevalence of mental health issues amongst young people. And uh, as you said, uh, the, uh, the prescri prescription of antidepressants seems to be on the increase, in particular amongst young 18 to 25-year-olds and, and, uh, and even younger, of course, you know, those uh, students who are undergoing stressful exam conditions or they may have uh, lives that are, uh, are somewhat chaotic. Uh, doctors are, are far more inclined to prescribe uh, antidepressants and, and medicalize their conditions. Now, is there a, an argument to say that, uh, so, so your, your, essentially your argument is that uh, those tools that we may have had available to us to, to deal with uh, these difficult situations are, are somewhat eroding. And so people are, be, are less uh, inclined or have less, uh, uh, less of an ability to, to deal with uh, sudden imbalances in, in their lives. So is there an argument to say that much of what we, we, we may label as, as uh, mental illness uh, is actually just an inability to, to deal with the natural course of life, right? You know, life is full of problems and challenges and, and one needs to deal with those problems and challenges with the psychological tools that one has at one's disposal. And, and because we're, because of for, for those reasons which we can, we can talk about, but because we're, we're less able to deal with those, those life problems are now wearing us down and, and the only solution that can be found are medical solutions to that. Is that right? I think there has been a very reductionist approach to looking at the issue of mental well-being. So emotions such as sadness and anxiety are very common, normal emotions uh, that one would expect any human being to suffer numerous times uh, in a lifetime or during the course of a lifetime. So we are less resilient than ever before. Yeah, I mean, it, it, it's interesting. If Actually, if you look at the the islamic text generally one can say that the islamic text so the quran and the hadith they forbid sadness 
and order its opposite. So when I say they forbid sadness in general terms, I'm not saying that they say that an individual should not experience sadness, you know, at a loss. Um, but generally, the, 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 the general direction of the Islamic text is not to encourage uh, sadness, anxiety or grief, but rather to order its opposite, to be content with the mercy and blessings of Allah, um, to think uh, positively. Um, and, and, and that's generally uh, what is, uh, you know, not, not to complain, not to grumble, not to become angry, not to become frustrated, not to ask, you know, where's the victory of Allah? Not to ask, you know, why have I been punished with this situation? Or, you know, not to ask, you know, what is you know what is Allah doing putting me through this test that is generally the Islamic text is the complete opposite of that um, but the, the the point about resilience is that uh, and the point I was making about reductionism is that they have this scientific approach of reducing problems to their smallest element what has been done is that there is a strand of thinking that reduces these human emotions to chemical imbalances and just says, well, actually, um, if you're feeling uh, sad, uh, it may well be that you've got a chemical imbalance. So why are we not asking what the question about why are so many people feeling miserable and stressed? Why are we not asking the question about what are the pressures that people are under that make it difficult to cope? Uh, why are we not looking at the wider issues about loneliness about unemployment about finances housing uh, politics pressure at work the loss of meaning in life the loss of community um so actually the the the, the fact that people are now less resilient uh, and the fact that people uh, feel miserable and stressed could well be symptoms of something else uh, but actually the reductionist approach just says well actually this is a chemical imbalance here's some antidepressants so uh, I think there's concern amongst many that antidepressants and, and, and psychotropic drugs are being too widely used. That doesn't mean that, you know, doctors are not missing cases. So there are probably lots and lots of people as well who are seriously ill, who are not being diagnosed and not getting the treatment. But that doesn't uh, contradict the point that actually, in some people, the condition is being overdiagnosed and people are being overmedicated with treatment that we, we know doesn't actually work in, 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 in general, my, in, in mild depression. There's no evidence that antidepressants are effective. What about the modern condition of, of human beings? So uh, we live in, um, in increasingly individualistic units, um, whether small family units or, or even beyond that, right? You know, uh, large numbers of people live uh, fairly atomized lives nowadays. And and I suppose liberalism promotes uh, the the individual at the expense of community and society. Uh, do you think this has an impact? This modern condition has an impact on our mental well-being. Yeah, there's there's no doubt that uh, the individualistic nature of society uh, makes it much more difficult for people to cope. Uh, because associated with uh, individualism, you have things like materialism, you have greed, you have debt, you have um, solitary pursuits. Um, so you, you have people who no longer have those relationships. So the, the, the capitalist view of society as merely comprised of individuals uh, has, a major, uh, ha, has a major impact because people um, no longer have that... Uh, 
sense of community. Um, they no longer have those links uh, with uh, the people around them, and they live very isolated lives. Um, and, and the other thing, of course, uh, to, 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 to bear in mind is that actually the, the existential compass uh, seems to have uh, been lost. And uh, I, I think a, a, a famous writer, um, or satirist, once said that, you know, when people stop believing in God, they don't start believing in nothing. They start believing in anything. And I think uh, that that is a very interesting uh, concept that actually you now have a very individualistic society uh, where a lot of people are, are bereft of a religious belief or a religious compass. Um, and they are just pursuing uh, their materialistic desires and the desire for instant uh, gratification. And that is a characteristic of individualistic societies. I mean, is there... Um... Is there research in your profession into uh, looking at uh, the the impact of mental health in societies that tend to have strong community units as opposed to societies that, that tend to uh, pay more attention to the individual as uh, at the expense of communities? Um, yeah, there is uh, research and, you know, without kind of boring listeners with uh, a lot of detail about that what we what we know from some of the research very interesting research actually on suicide um was that uh during world wars those countries that were involved in the world wars their suicide rates uh seemed to go down so we know that when nations are attacked in war uh their rates of suicide appear to go down now Many people have thought about, you know, why that, why might that be, and 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 that's a bit distinct from what we've seen in recent conflicts. So in recent conflicts, uh, we've seen, for example, uh, the American military huge suicide rates. Um, but uh, what I'm talking more about is in uh, the the old conflicts of, uh, you know, World War One, World War Two, rather than the more modern conflicts uh, that we've seen, for example, uh, in the Persian Gulf. But in those old conflicts, the, the general view is that when a nation is attacked and at war, you get increased cohesiveness and increased integration and an increased sense of community uh, in the face of a collective threat. So of a blitz we, spirit, for, ex for example. Exactly, exactly. So suicide rates, if you look at a graph of suicide rates uh, over the last uh, century or so in the UK, um, during the times of the, uh, the, the two world wars, the suicide rates went down. Um, so I'm, I'm not, uh, kind of making a point that, you know, the, the cure for depression is, you know, to be at, in a state of war, but I'm, I'm using the point that actually where you have this cohesiveness, even if it's, uh, temporary, uh, you actually do see an effect on, uh, certain parameters. Obviously war, you know, is a, is a bad example in some senses because it, it comes with, uh, you know, other costs and, you know, there's another price to pay. But the other research which is of interest is those uh, societies that are, are quite materialistic. Um, generally, there seems to be a relationship between that and uh, greater interpersonal uh, relationship problems, uh, less satisfaction with life. Um, so that is generally seen amongst uh, societies in which uh, materialism is an issue. I want to understand the relationship between consumption, materialism and uh, mental health a bit further. 
I mean, if you were to ask uh, most people, I mean, we live in a capitalist society, and, and if you were to suggest that uh, consumption does not uh, lead to happiness, of course, some on the fringes would accept that, but it, it definitely isn't widely appreciated that uh, material societies are often bad for the human mind. Uh, can you can you spell out what is the problem with these sorts of societies that stress or overstress the need to acquire material acquisition? Yeah, I, I mean, the, the issue here seems to be that actually uh, people are, are given these expectations of uh, consumption and consumerism. Um, and actually, this is given to people who uh, generally have lost that existential compass. So there is this uh, whole notion of trying to keep up with the Joneses. Uh, there is this whole um, angle of actually, uh, uh, you, you, you actually have uh, people trying to emulate other people. Uh, and that has a very bad effect on, on, on one's self-esteem and on one's mentality. Um, and when it used to be keeping up with the neighbors next door, you now have this situation actually of a globalized world and social media and the, the effect of social media on self-esteem has been very well reported because you end up uh, with this consumer culture, seeing people who are, uh, are wealthier, people who are seemingly more happier, uh, people who are more beautiful. And this actually has a very powerful effect on people. And, and that is why you, when we talked about young people earlier on, survey after survey has shown that social media, I mean, in a, in a recent survey, young people said that 41% uh, of them said that using social media um, was uh, making them uh, more uh, depressed and uh, making them more anxious uh, and sad. Um, so... People now we see are kind of focusing on, you know, trying to take the best photo for Facebook or Instagram and actually losing the real meaning of life. And that is actually because I would say that in an individualistic, materialistic society, uh, that actual meaning of life, that philosophy of life and uh, actually um, believing in something uh, has completely gone and has been and, and just been re replaced with consumerism. Now, in the West, we live in atomized societies and very closed communities. And so we hardly ever interact with our wider communities, except on uh, on special days or except on, on in exceptional circumstances. And uh, I suppose Muslims living uh, in the West will be impacted by these atomized individualistic societies. Um, how, how do you how do you propose we uh, we free ourselves from uh, this type of living which forces us to uh, to to close our doors to our neighbors and to uh, and to live fairly secluded lives yeah i mean the 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 general outlook of islam towards society is is much different uh, to that of uh, western liberal societies where individualism uh, and uh, the concept of uh, individual autonomy uh, are fundamental um, and and actually uh, we we say this, but this is something which is uh, deeply ingrained uh, in western liberal society the the concept of individualism uh, and it has a huge effect on people, so people think uh, about themselves, 
um, they think about their own uh, gratification um, and these relationships with the wider society um, that, sorry these relationships with the wider society uh, have been completely eroded and and yes uh, the uh, the Islamic viewpoint on this uh, is completely different. So yeah, I mean, one of the the very well-known hadith, for example, uh, narrated in Bukhari, known as the uh, Hadith al-Safina, the Hadith of the uh, boat, uh, where Rasulullah sallallahu alaihi mentioned the, the example of the one who stands for the limits of Allah and the one who compromises the the limits, the hadood of Allah, are like the people in a boat some of whom occupy the upper deck and some who occupy the lower deck. And whenever those in the lower deck need water, they have to go to the upper deck to retrieve it. And if some of them were to say, well, why don't we make a hole in the lower deck in order um, so that we don't harm the people of the upper deck, if they were not stopped from doing so, all of them, you know, the entire boat will sink. They will all fall and will all be failures. But if they stop them, they will all be saved. Now, actually, if one looks at this hadith, this is actually giving you a, a view of society, that actually society is more than just individuals, that actually uh, the people in society need to be able uh, to uh, prevent others in the society from doing things that would actually destroy the fabric of society. So there is much more to the makeup of society than, than merely the individuals. And you're absolutely right that uh, all the other rules, for example, the rules about congregational prayer, the rules about uh, maintaining uh, relationships with uh, with family, uh, the rules which prevent, for example, Muslims uh, from being in dispute uh, with each other and from uh, boycotting each other, uh, the rules of zakat, uh, the the relationship uh, one must have with one's parents, um, the relationship uh, that Islam saves and the obligations you have towards your neighbors and to your community, uh, all of these things uh, make for a very, very different society and outlook on life. And I can see many of the Islamic rules uh, require us to congregate uh, with our fellow brothers in, in society. So whether it's Salah in the mosque, uh, where we worship Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala together, uh, whether it's looking after the neighbor or Silatul Rahim, looking after your relatives, all of that sort of forces us to break free from our atomized lives. Yeah, uh, I mean, a, a, a really interesting example. I, I mean, I met a uh, a brother recently and he's really worried about uh, his son. And uh, we were having this discussion about how his son is so lonely and isolated. Uh, and this brother um, said that in the past he had paid people to be his friend. Uh, and I, I found that this was really, really interesting um, that uh, actually he had had to hire someone uh, in order to befriend uh, his son because his son, son was so lonely and isolated. So, uh, I mean, these issues, uh, uh, the, the issue of loneliness is a massive issue. And actually, um, if you look at the literature, uh, people will say that um, it is an epidemic. Um, I mean, for example, uh, surveys in America showed that, you know, uh, between 20 to 30 percent of Americans said that they constantly felt alone. Now, it was thought in the past that loneliness was an issue uh, for the elderly. So, for example, people uh, who have had children, their children grow up and go away from the home. Uh, so those links are not there. 
um, if you have husband and wife, one of them passes away, so one of them is left very alone. Um, and also the tendency of you know many people to have smaller families. Uh, it was thought that this was an issue afflicting mainly the elderly, uh, the issue of loneliness. But actually, uh, more recent studies have shown that, uh, that even younger people who have all these friends on Facebook and all these followers on Twitter and Instagram uh, are feeling very, very lonely uh, and very alone. Um, so, yes, what I would say is, I mean, you know, if you just take a, an example of the, the nature of how uh, uh, Islam deals with, uh, you know, a loss such as bereavement, uh, the way in which Islam encourages people to go and uh, meet with the one who has suffered a bereavement and to support them and to talk to them. And, you know, this uh, is important because we sometimes see people wanting to actually, uh, you know, isolate themselves further uh, when they face such an issue. So generally the Islamic rules uh, are against uh, the idea of isolating oneself. Um, apart from, uh, you know, from time to time, uh, there are, you know, there are some of the Muslim scholars talked about, you know, it's, it's not a bad thing to go away and to contemplate or to travel or, you know, to, to look at the, the, you know, the creation of Allah uh, or to even contemplate or to think or to read Quran by oneself. But that is not the norm. Uh, that could take place as part of a, a balanced life of an Islamic personality. But uh, the norm is that a Muslim interacts uh, with his society, with his neighbors uh, the the community in which he lives with his family, and that is a very very important means of uh, of dealing with issues. And yes, I mean it is uh, sadly only too frequent uh, that uh, I come across people who uh, their problems are compounded by loneliness, isolation, uh, lack of support. Now, Imran, anecdotally at least, it seems to me that uh, young women or young girls, in fact, are impacted by. Uh, these uh, conditions of anxiety and stress and uh, and even mild or, or deep depression. Um, and um, I've read some research that indicates that um, a lot of this is down to uh, the expectations uh, that um, are compounded by social media, uh, as well as uh, the, um, uh, the, the sort of the myths or the uh, the model of uh, human perfection they're meant to um, emulate. Um, can, can you shed some light on this? Uh, I mean, I'm not sure of the, the research base which uh, suggests that females are affected more uh, by these problems. But, but certainly uh, one of the issues that we have seen uh, is that uh, there is a, a promotion of unreasonable expectations. Um, so you know, social media has been linked to poor self-esteem and self-image through the advent of, you know, image manipulation on uh, some of these photo sharing platforms. So the notion of the ideal body image has been detrimental to self-esteem and image. And I think that's especially the case amongst young women. Um, so uh, young women definitely have been very susceptible uh, to the damage that has been caused uh, uh, by the the effect on self esteem of uh, social media, um, and you know the the twenty four seven circulation of easily viewable manipulated images uh, can promote and entrench unrealistic expectations of how young people um, should look and behave. Uh, and yeah, the impact on self esteem can be very damaging. I mean, one of the statistics I, I am familiar with is that the uh, 
the Royal Society of Public Health said that nine in 10 young females were unhappy with the way they look. So in that sense, that could be something which is obviously affecting people's well-being. Um, the fact that actually, you know, such a huge number of young women are unhappy with the way they look. One has to look then at where does that come from? So it, again, it would be the very kind of biological approach would just be to say, well, actually, this is a chemical imbalance and here's some medication and it will improve your self-esteem. Uh, but anyone, you know, who wants to think about these things in a, in a matter which actually brings about change and uh, in a matter uh, which is positive, one must consider why is it uh, that um, so many young women are unhappy with the way they look? Where does that come from? Well, I would say, Imran, that uh, as well as social media, uh, marketing and beauty companies has a big part to play in uh, in building these unrealistic expectations for for young girls. Um, you know, it's it's often said that the best form of marketing is that marketing which preys on your worst fears. And um, if if you know modern marketing is all about selling more and more products and more and more ranges of products and the beauty industry i suppose is exhibit a when it comes to uh just selling these expectations to young girls i mean it's it's something which uh a uh professor uh, at columbia university coined the term the philosophy of futility and he was a professor of marketing uh, and he coined this term and it's very very interesting because he 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 uh, he wrote a piece called The Economics of Fashion. Um, and in that, he spoke about how quite a lot of people in the Western nations have departed from the old, uh, what he called the old time standards of religion and philosophy. And they failed to develop forceful views to take their places. Um, and he spoke about how they have therefore hung on to something which he calls the philosophy of futility. Um, and this view of life, or what he says, actually a lack of a view of life, it involves a question as to the value of motives and the purposes of the main human activities. And there is a tendency to challenge the purpose of life itself. Now, what's the point here? The point is that the, what he argues is that the effect this has is it actually concentrates the human mind on very superficial things. So he said, actually, human attention is concentrated on superficial things in which fashion reigns. And then we, we, many will have heard of the concept of retail therapy, which is popular in the press. Uh, and this, was, uh, this is a basically a term that where you shop in order to make yourself feel happier. Um, and, and it was a term first used in the Chicago Tribune back in 1986, when they said we, and the Chicago Tribune talked about America, and it said we have become a nation measuring out our lives in shopping bags and nursing our psychic ills through retail therapy. So all of this actually, um, when we're talking about people's appearance, people have become focused on this. Uh, this has actually become their belief system, uh, the issue of celebrity, the issue of uh, fashion, uh, people who, uh, you know, as I said earlier, uh, believe in nothing will believe in anything. Um, and, and, and this is what's happened here. So that, that people really are very, very focused on um, the actual, uh, you know, these superficial things.
uh, like fashion, like celebrity, like, uh, you know, and, and the, 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 the nature of, I would argue that the nature of uh, society uh, is one whereby mood, uh, the mind is disabled and disengaged. And the mind is occupied with this cycle of want uh, and is occupied uh, with these very superficial issues. Now, of course, we are believers in Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala and um, that doesn't mean our lives are going to be free of uh, trouble. In fact, uh, Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala says that he will test for believers. So how does a believer deal with uh, the normal travails of life, Imran? I think the whole issue comes back to what is the what is the compass that islam builds uh, within an individual what's the basis that it builds within an individual and also of course uh within a society and within a state and and that's what one has to look at so what are the basic uh islamic concepts that must be in in the same way that you know these concepts of individualism and materialism have become ingrained in people what are the concepts of islam um which uh, which actually are ingrained uh, amongst people such that they do not become uh, depressed and anxious uh, in relation, for example, to, uh, you know, difficult life events or, you know, even, you know, some of the anxieties that people face over what are actually issues to which you would expect them to be more resilient. So the, 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 the principles are... Um, if you look at uh, how one can equip oneself really to uh, to deal with these issues are uh, the importance of remembering the favors of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala upon you. Uh, now people may say, well, that's a very, very basic point, but actually this is something which would give uh, the, the human mind and the society great resilience. So if an individual or society is able to recognize the favor of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, um, it is actually very, very difficult to become frustrated, to become angry, uh, to to feel sad, to feel anxious. As Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala said, uh, that if you tried to count the favors of Allah, never would you be able to count them. Um, so actually you have this different kind of psychology where you think about what you have, you're grateful for what you have, and you don't worry too much about what you do not have, and you're not ungrateful for what you have been given. Uh, that's uh, a very, very important concept. Another important Islamic concept is, you know, the, the general concept of uh, what is described as qadaw al-qadr, the, the, the understanding of fate and destiny. So whatever befell you, whatever, you know, event, life event befell you, whether it bereavement, whether it be the loss of a job, um, you know, whatever has befallen you was not meant to escape you. And whatever escaped you was not meant to befall you. So if you are afflicted with, you know, the normal things that people become quite sad and anxious and upset about, illness, bereavement, loss of wealth, loss of job, one takes the view that actually Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala has decreed these matters. And that, look, uh, with hardship, there is relief. Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala mentions this on numerous occasions in the Quran, that after hardship, there is relief that generally the view of the Muslim is things do not remain the same. If your situation today is very bad, that doesn't mean that your situation is always going to be bad. So, you know, some of these uh, 
concepts and, and obviously turning to Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala um, Allah said Allah verily in the remembrance of Allah do hearts find rest and tranquility uh, so again this is something very very important um, uh, an important concept and you know you could you could devote and, and, and scholars of Islam have devoted you know entire volumes just to discussing you know, the meaning of this ayah of Quran, that how is it that by remembering Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala and being close to Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, um, actually problems become much smaller and the heart becomes tranquil. Because if you think about it, I mean, what's the other option? Uh, you know, if you lose a loved one, uh, if you lose your job, if your health is taken away from you, what's the other option uh, that you have other than the remembrance of Allah and turning to Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala? Uh, and that is, uh, you know, fundamentally exhibited to us by Rasulullah sallallahu alaihi wasallam. When he lost his son, what were, what did he say? He said, "The heart is sad, and the eyes shed tears, but we don't say anything except that which pleases our Lord." And what was what did this mean? This meant that at this point in life, when you have a massive loss, you know, he lost his son, and. Uh, how he dealt with that was he was he the the statement he made is a recognition that in such a situation of stress you may say something which actually displeases your lord because what he was saying is the heart is sad and the eyes shed tears but i won't say anything which displeases my lord so this is actually again a re reminder that to deal with such issues, one obviously needs to understand the importance of the remembrance of Allah uh, and that actually uh, this is uh, a very important way to deal with these emotions. You must come across people who, uh, due to these triggers, uh, child loss or you know, natural phenomenon or a loss of health, uh, their lives are upended and, and they... Uh, they end up, as you said, you know, they may be living prosperous and, and quite quite normal lives. And, and suddenly, because of these situations, these triggers, uh, they uh, they let go and, and their mind unravels and their lives unravel. I mean, without the belief in Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, and as you said, the, uh, the constant uh, reminder of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala's blessings upon you, as well as uh, the the various means that you outline as to how a believer uh, would show resilience in the face of uh, adversity, uh, such as patience and forbearance, and um, you know a general awareness that um, that Jannah is is awaiting those believers who who show those qualities. I mean, how would a how would a person deal with uh, the these uh, normal travails of uh, of life? Yes, amongst uh, these Islamic content, uh, concepts is a, a clear antidote. But the, the problem you have is that you have individuals trying to adopt uh, these uh, antidotes or these, uh, you know, these Islamic viewpoints uh, in the midst of a society which is strongly materialistic, where you have strong consumerism and you have strong individualism. Um, so it, even if one has adopted uh, these concepts, um, one cannot underestimate the strength, of, uh, the, the, the strength of the societal concepts 
uh, and their effect of an individual. One, one cannot um, uh, underestimate that. So tell me about early Muslims and how they dealt with these challenges that they faced in, in their lives. Yeah, I mean, there are, I mean, obviously, the, 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 the most important example to talk about is, you know, the, 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 the best of mankind, the messenger of Allah, sallallahu alayhi wa sallam. So if you look at the life of the messenger of Allah, sallallahu alayhi wa sallam, uh, and I think it's important to put this together because the one who feels that his life has been affected by a very significant and difficult event um, should contemplate the life of the Messenger of Allah, sallallahu alayhi wa sallam. So the Messenger of Allah experienced the sadness of being an orphan, um, he, uh, which is a, a massive test in itself. Um, whilst carrying the da'wah of Islam, uh, he was severely treated, tortured, uh, the entrails of a camel placed on him, you know, his uh, his feet bled when he was driven out of Taif, he was driven out of Mecca, uh, he was boycotted, you know, by people from his own family, uh, you know, he was injured in battles, uh, his innocent wife was uh, accused, as we know, uh, he was bereaved of his son and most of his daughters, he was accused of being a madman and a poet, and, you know, he faced uh, massive... Uh, Tefts, you know, I mean, it's narrated that due to hunger, he used to tie a stone around his stomach. Yet his example obviously was one of uh, perseverance. Um, similarly, you know, if we look at uh, some of the early Muslims, uh, you know, the famous examples uh, like uh, uh, the example of Al-Khansa, whose four sons uh, were killed in the Battle of Qadassiyah. And she was a remarkable example of someone who asked about uh, the you know the fate of uh, the messenger of Allah and uh, who uh, praised Allah and, and thanked him um, for the situation she found herself in and amazingly as well when one looks at some of the stories of um, uh, some of the uh, ulema of the past some of their stories are phenomenal um, so uh, Imam Sarkhasi uh, a very famous scholar who wrote the uh, the, the, the book Al-Mabsut he was actually being, if you look at uh, uh, him, he was actually being held as a prisoner at the bottom of an unused well. Yet he produced 15 volumes of Islamic jurisprudence while being a prisoner. And there are many, many examples of other scholars as well, like Ibn Athir, for example. He was crippled. And then he wrote two uh, immense books. Um, Imam Ibn al-Jawzi was banished from Baghdad and on his travels, uh, he learned the recitation uh, of the Quran. So, so generally, when one looks at the example of the early Muslims, um, they understood this, that even though they may be in a very difficult situation, uh, even though they may be you know, facing immense hardship, uh, actually there was uh, an ability to seek reward and to, to make something good uh, out of that situation. Uh, and we know that... Uh, uh, Rasulullah sallallahu alaihi he mentioned these things. For example, he said uh, in one hadith, whoever has his eyesight taken away from him and is then patient, he will be compensated with paradise. Um, so here he's giving an example of, look, if you actually have a significant physical disability and you're patient with it, the reward for that will be paradise. Um, and there are many other examples in the hadith which, uh, uh, which talk about um, a... Um, a similar attitude, and, and one of the one of the most beautiful hadith, which is narrated uh, 
in Sahih Muslim, Rasulullah he said, amazing is the affair of the believer. Verily, all of his affair is good, and this is not for no one except the believer. If something of good or happiness befalls him, he is grateful, and that is good for him. And if something, if something of harm befalls him, he is patient, and that is good for him. So that was the kind of, you know, that characteristic uh, was something which characterized the early Muslims. Dr. Imran Wahid, Jazakallah Khair, and I thank you for today's discussion, and may Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala reward you and, and give us all the um, ability to um, reflect the attitudes uh, you highlighted today. Jazakallah Khair. Yeah, barakallah Fiqh, and uh, I'm grateful for you having me. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with and Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that and Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus get 15% off your first order at bowlandbranch.com. Code buttery exclusions apply see site for details how would you like to look five years younger in a clinical study people that had volume added with juvederm voluma xc in the cheeks perceived themselves as looking five years younger at six months after treatment look younger feel like you add volume for lift and contour in the cheeks with juvederm voluma xc reverse signs of aging by adding volume to smooth laugh lines with juvederm volure xc for important safety information and to find a licensed specialist, visit Juvederm.com. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Not for people with severe allergic reactions, allergies to lidocaine, or the proteins used in Juvederm. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. There's a risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. Talk to a licensed specialist to find out if it's right for you. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style.